So I want to begin tonight by saying some thank yous. The first, of course, is to Jeff Wood, who is very unhappy to say that he's out sailing in Greece at the moment and therefore can't be with us, who was the one to launch me on this journey. Also to Ian Butler, who as head of department badgered me for over two years to get my professorial application in good enough order to be submitted. To my students, especially my PhD students, and to all of my colleagues, particularly in the development and Centre for Development Studies at Bath, including those who have now left to go, go on to other places. Because what I'm going to present tonight is very much the outcome of collective struggle, sometimes with and occasionally against one another in the centre. Thanks are also due to my parents, Barry and Margaret, to my sister Catherine and son Simon Luther, who together with dear friends, some of whom are here, have taught me most of what I know about what matters in life. And of course, thank you to all of you for coming out tonight. As some of you know, my father was a Baptist minister. Although he was teaching in a theological college by the time I came along, I grew up listening to an awful lot of three-point sermons. Partly as a result of this, I suspect, the number of three seemed to have a kind of magical quality. So there are three points that I'm aiming to make tonight. <clears throat> the first point is about the importance of recovering people as subjects of their own lives rather than objects of policy. After all, what distinguishes well-being from other policy approaches, and however different the policies labelled well-being may be, is the emphasis on the subjective. That is how people themselves are feeling and thinking about their lives. The second point <clears throat> concerns how we think about well-being. Building on the model we've developed here at the Centre for Development Studies, I suggest we need to move away from an emphasis on the subjective or psychological well-being at the individual level to relational well-being. That is, an approach that sees well-being as grounded in relationships. The third point brings these two issues together. If we shift from seeing people as objects to seeing them as subjects, this raises the question, what kind of subjects are they? I'm going to suggest that the dominant approach in our society, as in studies of well-being, is to see people as psychological subjects, prioritizing what people think or feel in accounts of the self. Our research in Southern Africa and, and South Asia makes me think instead that we should regard people as moral subjects. This doesn't mean that people always get things right, but that for most people, trying to get things right matters. This makes well-being, if you like, not so much a matter of having a good life as of living a good life. You could argue that the moral is a type of psychological and I'm not sure I would want to disagree with you. What I think is critical about the moral is that it is essentially relational. It is difficult even to think what the moral would mean 
for an isolated individual. Morality is a property of relationships. This doesn't need to be relationships with other people. It could be relationships with animals or with the natural world. But some form of relationality needs to be at the center of the picture. In making these points, I'm going to move back and forth a bit between the situation here in the UK, which along with the US has dominated recent academic thinking about well-being, and my own research, mainly drawing this evening on research I've done in Zambia. I'll finish the question with the so what, the lecture with the so what question. So when we get there, you know we're nearly done. <clears throat> the so what asks what difference all of this means. What difference does it make to policy and practice? Is it just a matter of academic games playing, the things that people do, academics do to amuse themselves, or does it make some kind of real difference? So, from object, objects to subjects. <clears throat> I want to use an example to make clear what this means. What we have here is a typical development studies image. It's an image of an elderly widow living alone. She has no schooling. She has a small amount of land, but she has no labor to farm it. She has no access to state benefits. She lives on the margins of a marginal community. She has one son still living. The other died in early adulthood. She is totally dependent on provision from that son. Things, in short, are grim. So the typical picture in international development, as other forms of social policy, is that all you see is what people lack, what people don't have, the deficit, the weakness. This has a perverse effect, that policy which is designed to help people also produces a kind of stigma. Objects of pity, maybe, or at worst, condemnation. It may be difficult for some of us to imagine how this feels, but think for a moment, how would it have been if Bernie had introduced me by all the things that I hadn't done, rather than some of the things that I had? It would have been a lot longer, and it wouldn't have been a happy picture. So what then does a well-being perspective do? When we start from what Shuki says about herself, we see a very different perspective. She says she's happy with her son's care, but she's chosen to live separately from them. She has good relations with her neighbors. She's content with her economic position. Although she jokes that, well, she must be much better off than her neighbors because they're getting access to benefits and she isn't. She's proud of what she has achieved. She points to the trees that she's planted, the house that she's built. She has a strong sense of ownership and identification with the place where she lives. She also says that she's made a decision to be happy. Small sorrows, she says, she'll talk about, but large sorrows she keeps to herself. Joop. 
What's important to note is that it's not all sunny side up. Shuki was seriously aggrieved that she was not receiving benefits. And the loss of her husband and one of her sons was clearly a major issue. So in international development, at least, when we talk about well-being, we don't mean that it's all sunny side up. Rather, the point is to give a more whole approach to life, a more balanced view. And ultimately, it's about the kind of persons, the kind of selves that we represent others and also imagine ourselves to be. So if we move from object to subject, then the next question is, what kind of subject do we mean? To explore this, I'm going to come back to the UK and think a bit about the context in which well-being has come to be such a major topic of concern. That it is a major concern, I think, is difficult to dispute. We're constantly being exhorted to eat better and exercise more, to relax and cultivate mindfulness, to get out in the open air or spend time volunteering. Some people embrace this as a sign of new and different orientation, an emphasis on the quality of living rather than the more usual way of talking about what we have or what we want to get. Others are more cynical, suggesting that mobilizing volunteers is a way of distracting from the fact that the state benefits are being cut. Or self-care is, a, again, a way to avoid cuts in public services. Others that are stress on personal happiness is a way of distracting from much-needed political change. For myself, I think there is something to be said on both sides. But what I'm more interested in is why well-being is so omnipresent. After all, even if it's only used as a way to mask austerity, we can still ask, why is it well-being that is being used by these people at this time? My suspicion is that constant references to well-being betray an anxiety that it's something we don't have, that maybe somehow all is not well. As a society, or perhaps as individuals, we don't enjoy well-being. I believe that this preoccupation with well-being is linked to major changes in the structures of society and economy that have seen the space for community eroded with the expansion of the state and, more recently, the market. This has removed many of the ties which both kept us in our place and told us who we were. You'll be relieved to know that I haven't got time this evening to talk more about this, but if you want to know, I have got a paper when I try and set out the argument. My focus here is instead on the kinds of solution that are being proposed, whether these position us as subject or object, and what kind of subject or object they make us out to be. So what are these solutions? The main one is to consume, to consume more but better. Good stuff, organic, sustainable, sustainably sourced, harmony-inducing, fairly traded, biodegradable. Then to regulate ourselves better, 
preferably by some very fancy bits of kit. I got this image from a review site, and underneath it, somebody had written, I don't know what I feel, which many of us may feel. So the high road is one of self-cultivation. Your identity as subject confirmed by your management of self. The ability to make the right choices, including ethical choices, to produce a lean, fit, productive body, calm, agile mind, and can-do positive attitude. There are other solutions also that take a more social and integrated form, spending time outside, doing things with others. These tend, however, to be a lower road. Forms of rehabilitation designed for the people who can't quite make it on their own. What is interesting is the way that the lean and happy subjects of well-being simultaneously become objects through the need to monitor and evaluate. And well-being itself becomes an object that can be charted, quantified, and monitored through abstract technical measures. Ideally, this is done, of course, as through the Fitbit, by people themselves. The individual scoring against a range of targets and league tables, counting the number of steps done the day, producing him or herself as data that can be uploaded, a legible subject broken down into neat, statistically analyzable parts. Of course, this isn't in any obvious way, at least, forced on us. We do it to ourselves. And I'm not meaning to deny that these things can help. People love their Fitbits. And my sons will tell you that if I don't get a swim every couple of days, I start going crazy. So encouraging people to be more responsible for their own self-care makes sense when we want to leave, lead healthy lives into old age and when demand for health and social care significantly outstrips supply. But the problem comes when this is effectively only managing the problem and not tackling the underlying issues in ways that can bring about a lasting solution. So if the underlying challenge of our times is the decline of the social and the rise of the market, then it seems to me a problem if most of our solutions focus on the individual and involve some form of commercial consumption. Another way of putting this is that the tools we reach for as solutions may be forged out of the same material as is generating the problem. Which made me think of a quote from Audre Lorde that I come back to again and again. It's in a speech entitled, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, which has many different applications. What does it mean, she asked, when the tools of a racist patriarchy are used to examine the fruits of that same patriarchy? It means only that the most narrow perimeters of change are possible and allowable. Whether or not we think racist patriarchy is the pressing problem, I think it's worth mulling on that second sentence. 
that if the solutions we propose reflect the same culture or thinking as the problems they are supposed to address, we will achieve only the very narrowest perimeters of change. And, of course, those responses bring problems of their own, not least that many of them, eating organic being the obvious example, have a clear class and sometimes race bias. We're back to some of the issues I started out with, as people are objectified and stigmatised. Being overweight or smoking become not just unhealthy, but also signs of a moral failure. And poorer people and people in poorer places and parts of the country experience more of the ills and have less access to the remedies, which results in exacerbating health inequalities. For all the emphasis on the body in images of well-being, I think our dominant model of well-being is as, as psychological subjects people whose true selves reside in their thoughts and emotions. This is a trend that has been developing in the UK since the beginning of the 20th century. But as time goes on, the shape it takes has also changed from a more social, ethical and spiritual vision in the early 20th century to the current vision, which is much more neurological and physiological in its focus. One way to think about this is that we've moved from an arts humanities view of psychology into one that aspires to science. And again, the danger is that it tends to be objectifying. So just as the caricature of a clinical approach is the leg in bed nine, we've now moved perhaps to the brain in image 514. Again, I'm not saying that all of this is bad. There's clearly much to be learned through neurological analysis. But when we find it difficult to think of ourselves in other than technical terms, and we, when we generalize these ways of thinking as the truth about human being that holds for all times and places, when we stop realizing that this is just one culturally specific way of looking at people that has its limitations as well as its strengths, then I think we have a problem. To give you an idea of one aspect of that problem, I'll take you back, if I may, to international development. In 2015, the World Bank discovered psychology or at least that version of it that comes through behavioural economics. This stems, as the picture shows, from the discovery, the very surprising discovery, that real people don't actually work in the way that economists had assumed that they do. Who'd have thought it? So small prompts, for example, sweets by the cashier, lead you to make choices that are beyond your control. You came in for cabbage, you end up with sweets. Showing that we are far less rational, far less in control of what we do than we like to think of ourselves. When the World Bank brings this into international development, it has some unfortunate effects. 
First, what it does is it introduces a new and different kind of deficit. So in addition to being poor and socially disadvantaged, now people are also unable to think straight. They lack the bandwidth, note the technical image, to make good decisions because they're too busy worrying about their economic situation. The problem. So what's the solution? Intervention. Full bellies make better decisions, apparently, on behalf of those bellies, those whose bellies are empty. In the familiar paternalism that we know from colonialism, this deficit is used as a reason to step in. What this approach also does is strip away all notions of culture or social difference or the politics of perspective. So behavioral economics is a view from nowhere, exactly that kind of perspective that has been so criticized by feminist and anti-racist scholarship. It also erases the political and smuggles in a new form of development problem. The problems of international development, it now turns out, are all about poor people making bad choices. It talks about individuals, but these aren't real individuals because their context, the families and communities or patronage networks within which they actually live, are stripped away. They are, in fact, back to the familiar objects dressed in newfangled psychological guise. Instead of being located in their own social and geographical context, they are, of course, located relationally, but the relationship is to the policy which defines them as objects. Again, let me be clear. I am not denying the value of behavioral economics. It's clear to me that people are far more susceptible to influence than we imagine. And the autonomous individual that our culture likes to portray is simply a myth. What I am drawing attention to here is the way that models of the psychological subject can easily be accommodated in ways that reinforce existing hierarchies of power and the way they may smuggle in underlying models of human being, which I think are impoverished in many different ways. If we're going to recognize people as subjects of their own lives, rather than objects of our philanthropic or critical gaze, we need a better model of well-being. We need to resist the reduction of well-being to just subjective well-being and the reduction of subjective well-being to measures of life satisfaction or emotional balance that can be rated on a scorecard of one to five. Asked about well-being, people in our research invariably talk first about having enough having enough to care for their families, having enough to share with people who come to them in need. This need for a basic level of welfare is, of course, true of all of us. It's just that some of us are affluent enough not to have to worry about it. 
So relationships in these accounts feature in two ways. First of all, the selves that people present are relational selves. They talk about well-being in relation to others as a collective understanding. This often goes beyond the immediate family to the wider community. Second, relationships figure as the means through which people get what they need, whether that is psychological or social or material. If we think back to Shuki, the woman whose image I started the talk with, she depended critically on her relationships. Most obviously with her son and daughter-in-law, but to a degree also with her neighbours. When we asked her if she knew anyone of influence, she said no, she didn't. In fact, she had petitioned on many occasions the local officials, saying that she should be put on the, on the list to get benefits. Her reason for saying that she didn't know those people was that they hadn't agreed to her request. They hadn't acknowledged then that relationship. They weren't her people. This emphasis on the material and the relational dimensions of well-being, in addition to the subjective, is something that is core to the approach to well-being that we have developed through the Centre of Development Studies here at Bath. The simplest way to express this was as a triangle. Notice the three points come in again. The value of this approach is that it clearly emphasizes the interrelation between the different dimensions. So we can't separate out the material in one bag or the and put the relational in another and the subjective in another. The three are interconnected and interdependent. The trouble with the image is that it is very static. It can't capture the ebb and flow of well-being over time or the shifting dynamics between the different dimensions. For a relational approach to well-being, we need a different model, one that captures the sense of movement and energy and dynamism of a dance of different elements as they interact with one another and are transformed through time through that interaction. Oops. This is what is conveyed in the image that we use to publicize the talk. It's a dance a dance in which different friends take turns to carry the bride-to-be about. Most obviously, it shows lots of smiles, which, of course, are the most widely recognized and internationally agreed indicator of well-being. But more importantly, what it shows is people celebrating together, an occasion which, in bringing people together, generates well-being. It suggests then well-being as a kind of energy that emerges through relationship rather than being something that is held within individuals. Something that is engendered in and through the dance rather than being a property of the individual dancers. The new image, thanks to my son Simon for the beautiful design of this slide, aims to express this. What it presents is the interrelation between personal, societal, and environmental processes. 
and the little twiddly bits show that there is also some autonomy within each of those. Autonomy within the personal processes or the societal or the environmental. So although there is relationship between them, there are some aspects, for example, of the ecosystem that are just properties of that system. Some aspects of personal histories, personal psychological makeup that aren't so profoundly intertwined with the others. So there's some relative autonomy within the image, but ultimately what it expresses is that interrelationship and hopefully it suggests the flow between them. I've now got to the third point, the issue of the moral subject. This comes out of our experience in doing research on well-being in two marginalized communities, one in India and one in Zambia, 2010 to 2014. It was a mixed method sub, uh, project, so it involved both a survey and case studies built up through open-ended life history interviews. The field research was led by Shreya Jha, who unfortunately can't be here tonight, but has recently submitted a PhD based on the Indian data. I owe a tremendous amount to Shreya, who is an excellent researcher, and also to the local team who worked with her. So with Shreya, we had three um, peer researchers from the locality who were tremendously important in terms of explaining to us what was going on, as well as providing interpretation and advice. We did two rounds of research in the two communities with two years in between. So the idea was to try and see some changes um, from one time to another. In Zambia, we, the surveys were with about 390 people and we produced 48 case studies. The survey respondents were household heads, both men and women, and we talked to them separately, husbands and wives. We also had 25% of the survey were with women who were heading households alone, since they are often a group who face particular challenges. Our schooling in the well-being literature meant that we were eager to hear not just how people were doing in economic and social terms, but also how they were thinking and feeling about their lives. This wasn't straightforward because clearly people weren't used to presenting themselves or maybe even thinking of themselves in quite those terms. For example, during grounding and piloting in India, we were trying to develop a question that would capture the quality of care that people felt they received in their families. The woman we were talking to responded in three, three ways. First of all, she said, she always worries about her husband if he's out. If he goes out somewhere to another village, he may be drinking, he may fall down, she doesn't know where he is. If he's at home, she knows she feeds him, she knows where he is, he's in bed, he's safe, it's fine. And she tried again, and we tried again. She was married in front of several people. And the third time, in great exasperation with us, she said, We've lived together all these years. We have five children together. I guess he does love me. What we found in the interviews also was that when we would try to ask about 
what seemed to us emotional topics, people would respond by talking about the material. So, for example, one woman in Zambia who had, who had been recalling her early married life and how happy she was, she just got a new home, um, living away from her mother-in-law for the first time, which is always good. She got a new baby. Her husband was doing well. He was working at Safari Lodge. She was doing a bit of farming. It was a good, happy time. It then turned out that her husband, who was away in the Safari Lodge, was away for a whole month at a time. So we asked her, well, how did that feel? How did you feel about that? It felt good, she said, because I knew that he was getting money that was going to help us. Away from the emotional, back to the material. Another woman talked about how she had divorced her husband after many years of suffering his infidelities and lack of support. It was a long story and a hard story. So again, the researcher said, was it difficult to divorce him? No, she said, I didn't even have a chitenge, a wrap that women in Zambia put around their skirt or trousers. I had to do odd jobs just to get one. Again, returning to the material. This doesn't mean, of course, that people don't experience emotions. Rather, when people talk about the material, they are indexing the emotional. And the material and the emotional are very closely intertwined. Love, for all of us, is expressed in providing. Frustrating as it was for a well-being researcher, it was clear that people were resisting our invitation, invitation to present themselves as psychological subjects. The question was, how were they then presenting themselves? Being good sociologists, we of course assumed that they were presenting themselves as social subjects. When we listen more carefully, however, especially during analysis and thinking about how we we're going to write this up, we realized that what they were actually doing was presenting themselves as moral subjects. This was most obvious in people's repeated reference to God or faith, particularly when we asked about what gave them strength to carry on. But it wasn't limited to this. That sense of the moral that sense of what it was the right thing to do was like the melody, the dominant melody or around which their lives they presented as variations. Well-being, essentially enwound as it was with responsibility for others, was an essentially moral concept. The selves which people presented through their narratives were essentially moral selves. This didn't mean that they always got things right, but that striving to get things right mattered. To explain a bit more of what it means to take a relational approach to well-being and what it means to think about people as moral subjects, I'm going to talk about one particular person, Thomas.
Thomas is someone for whom things just have a habit of going wrong. His wife sometimes wonders if he was just born unlucky or has someone perhaps put a spell on him. At other times, she brushes such thoughts aside, telling herself that the bad times are past. When we met him, Thomas was in his early 30s with three children under seven. We'll start with the personal processes. This isn't a picture of Thomas, because rules of anonymity um, require us not to do that, but I thought the kind of Rodin's thinker aspect of this picture fitted what I wanted to say. Thomas had a difficult childhood. He spent 10 years in his uncle's house so that he could get schooling, but during that time he was very badly treated by his aunt and exploited. So when he got a chance, he came back to Chiawa, the area in Zambia where we were, he settled back at home, got a job in a safari lodge, married a woman that he was very happy to be married to, and by his mid-twenties, everything seemed to be going well. He had a job where he was earning well, but then disaster struck. There was a robbery at his work, and Thomas was blamed. He was arrested, although there was no evidence for him, and he was put in prison. Even the people who did the job said he wasn't involved, but it didn't make any difference. He was kept in prison waiting for the case to come to court. Conditions inside were dire, with lice, overcrowding, lack of food. The family not only lost his income, but also need that his wife moved nearby the prison so that she could cook for him and support him. They had to sell the materials that they'd been gathering to build a better house for themselves. They had no idea when the case would be heard and no idea when the outcome would, what the outcome would be. In the event Thomas re was released after about a year, his case didn't come to court, so he was discharged, he wasn't acquitted. Both he and his wife described the time of his release as a kind of dream time, hardly daring to believe that she was, as he put it, a real person again. When Thomas tells this story, he very clearly presents himself as a moral subject. But the way he does it is far from simple. It's as though there is a struggle between two alternative narratives, which appear in many ways contradictory, but nonetheless maybe in some way depend on each other. The first is a high narrative of moral action, crafted through biblical themes of Christ's sacrifice and forgiving your neighbour 70 times 7. So Thomas explains, when I was out of prison, people used to say, no, do something, do something against those people who've got against you. You must take some kind of action, some revenge somehow. But I said, well, God is the only one who can judge. He links this with a recognition of human frailty, as I can make mistakes, he says, so can other people make mistakes. He also ties it into more local ethics of kinship and belonging. He says that he never confronted the man who set him up, although that man had asked him for forgiveness. And he explains that the man is his father's cousin. So it's better just to 
forgive, to move on. This high narrative, this high moral stance, is where Thomas likes to be. It offers a place of safety and gratification, reflecting his preferred idea of himself. He describes at length, for example, his sympathy for other prisoners, how he shared his food with them, how the guards recognised his moral qualities and made him the captain of the cells, how other prisoners started behaving better when they saw how he was behaving. He refers often to his faith as a Jehovah's Witness and to biblical texts. For those familiar with psychodynamic perspectives, this, also, this sounds quite a parental script, and this is reinforced by the fact that he identifies it with his mother. It was she who said he must start sharing his food with others. He also links this personal narrative to a further social one, suggesting that if more people were like him, they would be living in a good community where no one would suffer hunger, no child be unable to go to school, no ill person be too poor to go to hospital, and everyone would be able to enjoy good quality housing. Higher morality in personal relations, in short, would bring about improved welfare and economic development. The second narrative is much more tentative and fragmented. As with the positive assertions of moral virtue, this second narrative also presents a moral self, but one which is much more faltering and full of self-doubt. Its primary focus is Thomas's fear that he will not be able to provide properly for his family. He sees this as the danger of personal failure. The uncertainty he feels about himself then also extends to others. While the picture of strong positive relations dominates his interviews, in his everyday conversations, it was much more this uncertainty and this doubt and distrust of others that came through. He often would say that the only person that he trusted was his wife. So Shreya confronted him with this. Why is it in these formal interviews you talk in this way, this general way of trusting others, moving on from the harm that you have suffered, forgiving, but then in everyday conversation you talk about distrust and this is what he said. Whatever is today, I trust in that. So when people are sitting down and we're having a beer together, we're having a meal together, it's fine. I can trust them. When I see them, we can have a good relationship. But I don't know what tomorrow brings. So look, I can say we've forgiven each other. But I don't know what he has in his heart. It's easy to attribute the second attitude to Thomas's own bad experience. And clearly this is a significant part of the story. This would keep it within the personal processes node. But interviews with other people also stressed this social distrust, also stressed jealousy and disharmony, harmful gossip, suggesting that the pattern of conditional trust may be broader based. 
Of course, the social is extremely strong in Chiawa. Many people are connected by kinship. It's a hazardous context in which to do research because you never know what the hidden connections might be. As we've seen, this can be positive in that these underlying ties then can temper conflicts and encourage reconciliation. But close ties also mean multiple claims, multiple responsibilities that you have that can be very difficult to honour in contexts of scarcity. The phrase, you never know what is in people's hearts, was a very common one, and it's an implicit reference to witchcraft. The frequency of witchcraft allegations shows the ambivalence of relationships, even amongst close kin. And it's important to note that while we think of witchcraft as a traditional African problem, both historical and anthropological evidence shows that the level of witchcraft allegations rise and fall, and they are particular, particularly characteristic of times of social change and times of changes of social norms. So the uncertainty in personal relations also mirrors the precarity of Thomas's household economy. The similarities, of course, not coincidental. As I said earlier, your social relations are very important in terms of being able to gain access to the things that you need. Without a salaried job, Thomas cannot support his family properly. He cannot support his siblings and his children in school without help from the wider family. Unfortunately, this precarity is not particular to Thomas, but reflects the uneasy post-colonial settlement within Chiawa as a whole. So now we come to the societal dimension. Some of the land is long established under private plantations, but most of the land in Chiawa was customary land held in trust by the chieftainess for the community. If you needed land to plough, to plant, you came to the chieftainess and she would allocate land to you. In 1995, however, a land act allowed customary land to be alienated, to be privatised for purposes of development. Since that time, virtually all the best land in Chiawa has gone to private industries, either to safari lodges along the waterfront or sold to people wanting to set up plantations. Although the Act says that before you, can, before you can pass land to the private sector, the people who are living on the land have to give their consent, in practice what is happening is that land is being sold from under people without them even being told. They find out several years later that the land they're farming and perhaps have farmed for generations is no longer theirs. So local people's already difficult livelihoods are being further threatened. While traditionally the chief governs along with the, the advice of the royal family, increasingly she has surrounded herself by a narrow coterie of people. Any development project that comes to the area has to go through those people, otherwise it will be stopped.
The societal context thus provides neither the security of modern independent state systems or even a fully functioning open market, nor the guardianship built into traditional understandings of power. Coming now to environmental processes, we can see that Thomas's economic precarity is underscored by the risks of the natural environment. An environment on which people depend for their livelihoods, but which also constitutes great danger. Chiawa is on the edge of a national park, and the number of wild animals has been increasing. Like other villagers in search for, of, wood for, for, of wood for fuel, Thomas has to go into the bush, risking encounter with elephant or buffalo. To make some income, he goes fishing at night, risking encounter with crocodiles. The animals also make farming hazardous, <clears throat> because as you can imagine, one night of a hippo or an elephant trampling your plot will finish your crops for a season. So there is also environmentally a deep sense of insecurity. As Thomas says, it's just a game of win and lose. This year, maybe there are not so many elephants we win. This year, there are so many elephants you lose. Again, what's important to see is that these characteristics of the environment are not just natural, but they're societal. They're about the kind of... <clears throat> Sorry. They're about the safeguards that have been given to animals so that you can now no longer kill animals because of um, protection of wildlife, but also about the fact that the land has been sold off. So the people and the animals are in smaller and smaller areas. The, the land being sold off has disrupted the traditional paths that elephants took to the water. The elephants are coming nearer to the village. The likelihood of Encounters between people and elephants is ever greater. Both people and environment are under threat, while some people are profiteering. I explained earlier how Thomas's projection of a moral self flickers between a strong, confident voice and one filled with distrust and fear of failure. This is mirrored in further uncertainty about what rules apply, about the nature of the moral universe. On the one hand, as I've said, Thomas relates his behavior back to a Christian framework. But on the other, he describes a crisis in faith, that when he was in prison, he prayed to God and nothing happened. So he'd asked his mother to go to witch doctors to see if they could do anything for him. So not only is there this movement in terms of his idea about himself as the high narrative and the, narrative, the low narrative, the feel of failure, but there's also this uncertainty about the moral universe. Within the interviews, he tends to talk about Christianity, the high narrative. In his everyday conversation, he refers more to witchcraft. 
along with his uncertainty about his ability to do the right thing, he expresses an attraction and a resistance around faith, God and witchcraft, which are still very unresolved. I've now got to the so what. So what does all this mean for us? And what are the broader implications of taking a relational well-being approach? The first is to shift from objectifying people to recognizing them as moral subjects with a critical relational dimension. If we took this seriously, I believe, it would have major implications both for the kinds of policy we pursue and for the ways that we do policy. Working with and not on people, making it a priority to accord everybody dignity and respect. This would also have implications for the kinds of methods we use to demonstrate success, resisting the view that only numbers count. The inclusion of societal, including political and environmental processes in the model of well-being, makes clear that it's not all about the individual. And while individual processes are important, we need to look to other issues, such as the role of big business in promoting food that makes us sick, if we want seriously to tackle the well-being deficit. This work, with its micro-focus, therefore, clearly complements other work that is being done at Bath on the commercial determinants of ill health. In this lecture, I've concentrated most, mostly on the question of the moral subject at a personal level. Casting well-being as a moral issue, however, also turns our attention beyond the nodes in themselves to the relations between them. What are the terms on which personal, societal, and environmental processes are engaged with one another? Where do dynamics complement one another? And where do they contradict? Where are areas of resistance or critical tipping points? The morality of well-being ultimately concerns the system as a whole and the extent to which the flows and interactions which it engenders tend to produce or undermine well-being. Taking a relational approach to well-being also means looking for multiplier effects, the potential to generate further positive outcomes, to continue, if you like, the dance. This is one example. It's an example of Bromley by Bow, which is a health partnership, which to me very much expresses a relational well-being approach, an approach that emphasizes working beyond the silos, working across different areas of life, understanding, or providing a resource that will meet different kinds of need that people bring. This is a group of gardeners from Bromley by Bow, who again are expressive of relational well-being. They're working with plants and soil, and they're also enjoying one another's company. Nearer to home in Froome, it was recently reported that emergency hospital admissions were down by 
broke down by 17% over three years after a program of health connectors brought ill and lonely people into social contact. Over the same period in Somerset as a whole, emergency hospital admissions went up by 29%. Here in the university, researchers are working with Wessex Water on a project that springs from exactly the understanding of the kinds of relationships that I've been talking about here. Personal happiness and illness linked to social inequalities and other ills, leading to high levels of drug use, including prescription drug use, which then results in contamination of the water supply, the personal, the societal, the environmental, in very direct relationships. Such examples show, I think, the value and importance of taking a relational approach to well-being even though they have been developed through quite different trajectories. But what is the point of looking at a rural area in Zambia? The first point, I guess, is the value of understanding the struggles other people face, especially struggles that historically we have had some part in creating and standing with them in solidarity where we can. The second is that understanding how people in other places see things provides a mirror which questions our own default understandings and particularly our academic constructions which often capture only a very partial representation of reality even in our own society. The way that people in Chiawa intertwine the material and relational stuff and love or enmity questions both the priority we give to thoughts and feelings in our thinking about well-being and the ways we think about relationships. The priority people in Chiawa give to their identity as moral selves also questions the thinness of many of our constructions of well-being which see it either in terms of happiness or mental health. The dark side of this moralizing also draws attention to social processes of othering and stigmatizing and should make us more conscious of the dangers of this in our own society and policy. Since first going to Bangladesh to do field work for my PhD, I have been tremendously privileged to have been able to spend some of my time with people in other parts of the world who see some things quite differently to our society's defaults. What is important is not whether they are right and we are wrong or vice versa. We are all forged in relation to a particular context and our perspectives share both the particular insights and the particular shortcomings and blind spots of that. The point is that there is a difference. That our way, with all its scientific language and technical sophistication and quantifiable evidence, is not the only way, is not the one truth. We are not alone in the universe. And for all that international development likes to assume 
that we have much to teach other people. The fact is that the most important thing for us to do is not to talk, but to listen. And to listen long and well enough to get our ears into their particular accents and cadences that we are actually able to hear what other people are saying in something like their own terms, rather than immediately translating it back into our own. We have a problem with well-being in the UK, and they have problems with well-being in Chiawa. The problems are in some ways different and in some ways the same. The hope must be that in sitting down together and really listening to one another, we will each be able to reflect differently on our own experience and begin to chart a different course. One that leads us away from the rocks where we are continuously getting shipwrecked and takes us out instead into open water. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, that was really fascinating. Um, and it's fascinating in a way that I think that really kind of um, interacts with a lot of things that having done research in the former Soviet Union, I'm going to introduce myself in a moment. Um, having done research in the former Soviet Union in many ways, trying to understand uh, and going around many, many poor places in, in the former Soviet Union, specifically in Russia and Ukraine, over the years, I've always been really struck with the paradox of how happy children are, how, how unbelievably happy children are. And then you come back to, uh, to the UK, uh, and then you realize that actually our children aren't nearly so happy, even though that materially um, they, are, um, they, they are quite, you know, um, fruitful. You know, I mean, life is good for them. So. Um, and I think that, that I, 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 I think there's there's so much more that I could um, that that I could take from uh, from this lecture, and I hope that you're in the same position. I'm David Galbraith. I'm the um, I'm the dean of the uh, the Faculty uh, of Humanities and Social Sciences, uh, and I just want to talk about uh, a few things because what I usually do is I kind of um, usually reflect on these uh, inaugural, inaugural lectures uh, and um, and and. Um, in many cases, I think what I do is um, I don't listen, but in fact, I try to, to reflect back in my own words what I think in a way. So, so I'm going to try to temper what I wrote previously to try to, um, to, try to, to take that in. Um, so I want to welcome you here tonight and, and say uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, I, I think uh, I had my own inaugural uh, lecture in this, uh, in this room, so, um, so I'm really frightened uh, at the moment um, uh, for that reason. But um, um, I think the, the, the talk really touched my own thoughts and the role of the self and what I would consider and is also discussed much in Sarah's work in kind of late capitalist economies. And what we mean, uh, and what we mean by uh, the kind of associated governmentalities that sit within them, and um, and for me, 
I was really taken in, in reading some of Sarah's work prior, this, this notion that uh, Rowan Williams, um, as, as cited in, in, um, in, in your piece in policy, um, policy and Politics, that one becomes human in and through relationship, and particularly through recognition and conversation. And this really, uh, this really I, I think, spoke to me in a way, because um, in, in, really, in much of my work in really thinking about what, what, uh, around uh, issues around vitality, uh, of what is life, and, and of course all kinds of issues around robotics and machine learning and things like that, so really kind of uh, enhanced in that, uh, in, in that issue around uh, what is, what is uh, alive, what is life, what is vitality, and Descartes and John, John Stuart Mill and many others will have had their own ideas about what, um, what it means, uh, what it means to, to mean, right? And, um, and what I really like uh, uh, about this is that, in fact, in, in many cases, they, they all had it wrong. Uh, because for them, it was inherently inherent, right? It was inherently inside. It was, it was either through a memory, so a memory doesn't have to be connected to anything. It was a memory, you know, either we're alive through memories or, or we're, um, we're alive because we think, therefore we, we are, in the case of uh, Descartes. But... Um, but I think what, um, what, what really comes through here today is the, is the notion of the, the relational. And I think that um, those of you that um, perhaps uh, critique international development um, um, will uh, recognize that uh, for sure. So the social dimensions of policy are key to understanding wellness, well-being, uh, the person, the self. And this sets in mind what, what, what in many cases I, I've been uh, doing a lot of reading on um, some, something that is, is quite a controversial character. Um, some of you will know Nicholas Taleb's work. Uh, he wrote Black Swan. Uh, he wrote Anti-Fragile. Uh, he wrote um, a, a, a few other, um, most recently, Skin in the Game. And what was interesting is, is that in many cases, he's coming to a lot of the same confusion, uh, conclusions, also through, uh, almost through a very chauvinist way. But in fact, he's coming through many of the same uh, conclusions, because his argument really is that we've lost something. You know that that, that this um, this notion, uh, what was talked about in, in terms of the, the the blurb that came with the lecture of this somehow that kind of global capitalism and global capital and global labor and all these things really mean that there's kind of a dislocation, a disruption, a a separation in, in some way or another. And um, for, for Talib, this he argues that this is kind of fundamentally a breakdown in trust. And so therefore, societies can't work the way that they're supposed to work because trust doesn't have a, it may have some kind of institutionalized kind of understanding, but it doesn't have any personalized understanding. Uh, so for him, it's, it's distinctly relational. And, and for him, what he's arguing, a very American phrase, is, is that in order to in order to do, right, in order to, to, to intervene in something is that you have to have what he refers to, a very American phrase, is skin in the game. You know, you have to fundamentally be associated with the action. Now, for him, that's a very complicated, as you would imagine, it should be very complicated, what it means to be, what it means to have skin in the game. Uh, and, and to me, this, this notion of, um, uh, of um, uh, listening, to the, um, uh, listening to the accent and the cadence is kind of fundamental 
uh, to that. Now, I stand uh, in front of uh, many of you today as, a, as, a, um, as somewhat of a, a senior manager in the, uh, in the university. And um, in many cases, what we try to do uh, in the university is, 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 um, is what we try to do is we try to atomize, right? We try to break down individuals into uh, units of production. And, um, and, that's, um, and that's despite the fact that in many cases around the university, uh, um, the Department of Social and Policy Sciences in particular, is that it's actually a, a community or the communities that are actually the most successful, right? You know, they are the most kind of, they, they are the most interesting. They are the most um, uh, productive. <laughs> you know, they are, they are, they are, uh, they are the most fascinating. And this really comes out uh, for me today. So but what I think is particularly interesting also is, is that even though that we're talking about this kind of, in many ways we may talk about a loss uh, of something, right? A, a loss of uh, morality, perhaps, you know, a loss of, of something, even though that I, I suspect we're all moral subjects and um, in, in the framework that's used here. But, but um, we may, in a sense, we may kind of reflect on our own kind of condition uh, in this late capitalist uh, economy uh, and the associated governmentalities, and we say we somehow lost our kind of moral bearing, and so therefore our moral subjectivity is, uh, is somewhat diminished uh, in, that, in that context. And so therefore, you know, we may, and of course, and Sarah hasn't done this in her, in her work, she, we may... Uh, think back to, in a sense, an earlier time uh, of when we were kind of locally situated, where we had these kind of local relationships, and may maybe they're through family, uh, or maybe they're through church, or, or whatever, in a way. And, and I think that, you know, what, uh, again, what Sarah says in, in one of her pieces is what at stake here is not then a communication, uh, a communitarian nostalgia of some kind of lost world, um, lost world of social harmony and solidarity. You know, it's, it's something... It's something, something else, in a way. I mean, you know, the the um, the previous slide that showed the um, the kind of the uh, the spatial uh, distribution uh, of a um, of a complex, uh, I think, is is an example of why it doesn't necessarily it doesn't hark back to a nostalgia. It says something some, something else. So where does this um, where does this leave us? So Talib, in particular, would have us believe that late capitalist societies and, and global capital and global services and global labor are threats to societies. You know, because that's what he's interested in. He's a risk analyst, you know, and, and uh, that's what he does. That's what he's particularly interested in is these kind of collective bads, you know, how we actually, we, we intervene and we make things worse. You know, and uh, we can see that all, we can see that uh, in, in, uh, in interventions, um, uh, both locally and international, and, and it was interesting even thinking about international development and even maybe even listening as an intervention. You know, and um, and where, does that, where does that leave us? Because his argument is, is that, in fact, what we do is that we intervene and make things more fragile. And so how do we, how do we make things more anti-fragile in the, in the case of Talib? So, um, so for, for him, you know, this kind of produces these kind of collective bads or, or black swans, uh, as he called one of his uh, earlier books. Um, but but for, 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 night, for tonight, we heard this, this relationship between the, the personal, the environmental, uh, and the social as being, uh, as being kind of uh, a, a distinct 
uh, a distinct uh, relationship. And what I think was particularly interesting, and, and perhaps I, I don't think necessarily um, we, um, we, we kind of unpicked it as much as we could in the hour or so that was available to us tonight, is kind of the co-determinants of those things, uh, of what the, what the personal, the environmental, and the social mean, because, uh, because uh, as clearly they, they, are, um, they are particularly uh, linked. And so when I'm particularly interested in my own research is what happens um, where, where does technology, technology as culture, technology as language, technology as um, technology fit within, uh, within that, um, that triangle, although that triangle has become more um, defined for me uh, this evening. So tonight, I'm very pleased to be able to give the closing remarks or these reflections, uh, which always, uh, which always uh, I, I, try to, um, I try to listen, I try to read, and I try to, um, I, I try to, um, to talk uh, to, a, to a broader audience in a way. And I know that many of you have come here just listen to Sarah and not me, so I'll sum up. So Sarah's work as it spans international development and social policy characterizes the department well, I think. Sarah and the department have continued to go from strength to strength. The Center for Development Studies, as we heard, Center for the Analysis of Social Policy, Center for Death and Society, are examples uh, of this research excellence and, and about these communities and why these communities are so successful and hopefully um, well-being yeah, as well. Um, uh, strongly reflected in this, um, and strongly, uh, uh, this is very clear also from the uh, results that we had today, um, that the department has excellent programs, excellent research, and excellent researchers and educators. Overall, I'm very pleased to be uh, a part of tonight and would like to thank um, you for joining. Uh, and I would also like to congratulate Sarah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you.